0: Hello and welcome to Marshall Matters with me, Winston Marshall at The Spectator Buildings in London. Today I'm joined by Rosie K and it's a day for celebration because Rosie has just launched K2CO, her new dance company. But the reason behind why she even had to start a new dance company in the first place is a little sad, perhaps to say the least. Rosie's here to tell us all about that. Rosie thank you so much for joining me today.
1: You're welcome, thanks for inviting me.
0: So can you, before we talk about the exciting new project you've got, can you tell us about your story and why why you've had to start anew?
1: So I'm a dancer and choreographer. I've danced since I was very very young and I've been lucky enough to have it as the sort of meaning of my life, really. I danced professionally for quite a few years, mostly abroad, but also in the UK. And then I almost gave up. I kind of went down the wrong track and I realised that I wanted to actually be a choreographer. I wanted to make my own work. So in 2004, I returned to the UK. I set up my own dance company, Rosie K Dance Company, and I started to explore the funding with the Arts Council and making first solo and duet work, and then I built up to sort of large-scale Productions. So we were doing quite well and we applied to get regular funding. And I was advised at the time to turn my company, that was limited by share, into a charity. And under English law, I had to voluntarily step down as a director and I became an employee. But it was still my name and I was the sole artistic creator and I earned the money and, you know, I ran the company basically. So I I really still felt it was my company. And I had a board of trustees, many of whom I'd known for many, many years. And it was quite a sort of hands off approach. I just got on making my work. I'd say that my work has had a political element and I'm interested in the world we live in. And so at times I'd skirted with controversial subject. And so when we set up the charity, I very deliberately, you know, put into the charitable objects that this company existed for the artistic creation of Rosie Kay to look at controversial and taboo subject matters, shining a light on difficult subjects.
0: So what would be an example of of some of those? So a
1: great example would be Five Soldiers. So quite a while ago, I suffered a really bad injury on stage and I was told that I wouldn't dance again and it would take me about a year to walk again. It was like full knee reconstruction, I was told. And following the operation, where it turned out not to be that bad, I dreamt I was on a desert battlefield and my leg had been blown off. And it made me question ideas about the body and the soul and the relationship between the body and the soul. So I'd have done anything to get back on stage and dance again. And, you know, I could lose my arms and my legs, but would I still want to dance? Yes, I would. And I went downstairs and it was the Iraq war at that time. And there was a lot of kind of antipathy about why we were at war, particularly in Iraq, And the the argument had never really gone that deeply into it. And so I was looking at the faces of young soldiers killed in Iraq. And I wondered, how do you train the body to prepare for war? Mm. And maybe they're a bit more like dancers than we realise. Maybe they love what they do. And so that set me on a long journey. I spent time with an infantry battalion training Mm. with them. I spent time at Headley Court looking at the rehabilitation of injured soldiers. And by that stage, the ward moved to Afghanistan and these huge numbers of soldiers were coming back, having survived multiple complex trauma when in Iraq they wouldn't have survived. So that sort of golden window of survival had massively got better in Afghanistan, but Mm. people were living from injuries that they wouldn't have lived off several years previously in war. So I got access to soldiers, sort of the training, the breaking and the putting back together again of their bodies at a time when nobody else was allowed to, actually. So I made a work about it, and when we first toured it, the MOD phoned up and tried to get the the show stopped because it was the time of the 2010 elections. So I was able to say to the MOD, well, actually, it's a free country, I'm not a politician, and this is a work of art, and I'm allowed to put this on.
0: Why would they have wanted it to be So it was uh,
1: Perda at the time, and so the press and politicians were not allowed to talk about the war in Afghanistan during the election. There's that period where you're not allowed to talk about the war until, I think it was David Cameron got in in 2010. So me just having a show that was on the news, on the radio, it was on the Today programme talking about it, they were got worried. Uh They thought, you're not allowed to do that. But I was like, yes I am actually. So I suppose a show like that, it changed perceptions not just of the general public in that it humanised soldiers but I can say it even changed perceptions within the army itself who went from being quite resistant and bit worried about me, to actually supporting and, you know, putting some money towards the show touring the past few years. So that's been quite remarkable to work with the military at that sort of level through the arts. It's been, you know, blows away your stereotypes and preconceptions on all fronts. Yeah,
0: that's wonderful. And then, so you're not scared of controversy, obviously. Yeah. And so last year, if I understand this correctly, you wanted to put on a production of Orlando by Virginia Woolf which was stepping into the trans debate.
1: So I actually was in like 10 days away from premiering another work, Romeo and Juliet, which I'd set in contemporary Birmingham. And I'd worked with West Midlands police, former gang members, really intensely with a school in Spark Hill, looking at the themes of Romeo and Juliet, knife crime, Mm. uh, child marriage, gang, gang culture... And then putting this show together. So I had a a young cast of nine dancers, a lot of whom were very inexperienced. And there was just something funny going on in the studio. I put it down to COVID.
0: What do you mean funny? The mood was funny? The mood
1: was funny. I just found that people weren't as open as normal. And I started to sort of just be... First of all, my father was going through the very horrible end of life with, with terminal cancer. So... I at first put it down to the fact that I was really quite sensitive and it was really difficult because I couldn't see him very often because of the COVID restrictions. But then I just found that talking to them, they didn't seem very open. They didn't seem as collaborative as I would normally expect for dancers. And I wanted to kind of relax them and show that I really cared about them, you know.
0: What age are these dancers? Um,
1: sort of in their... In their early to mid
0: 20s okay so they're sort of starting out yes it's a new generation yes yes and and so you can't sort of quite tell what they're thinking was it a sort of mood of self-censorship were they getting on with each other or were they just finding it hard to communicate with you
1: yeah i I couldn't tell because we we had such strong restrictions we weren't even allowed to eat lunch together we had to sit sort of like because of covid COVID, yeah Yeah. so we had to sit a different place in the studio and you would sort of snatch one-to-one conversations but I started to just feel a bit uncomfortable. I did think something was going on. Looking back, Uh something was going on. I noticed it like in, like I'll teach class. And if I gave a correction, I would see eyes rolling. And I would be like, well, hang on. You know, I've taught for for 25 years. I'm not telling you because I think you're wrong or, you know, because I'm trying to assert my power. I'm telling you, because this is technically really important, and this saves your knees, and this is what you need to do. You know, like, it's a really technical... Is that
0: a problem with authority they had, or...?
1: I think so, yes.
0: So it's a generational... That generation maybe had a a problem of being told what to do by anyone.
1: I think so. I think there's an element of that, and there's a real pedagogic tradition in dance. Like, we... I would say I'm quite a democratic choreographer. I invite people to give me their ideas, their creativity, and then I use it. But I can also make works where I'm like, this is the choreography and this is how you do it and you need to do it in this way because that's the result I want. You know, yeah. That's your role as a choreographer, as, as a director. Yeah. There are times to be really opening sharing and then there's times where you have to be like, this is how good you have to be. Mm-hmm. This was a show on one of the biggest stages in the UK. There was a lot of pressure on it. And these dancers didn't have experience in that. I do, so mm-hmm. I was—I just didn't feel like they were very generous to me, uh-huh. and that was quite odd. I'm not used to that. I feel like it's a fantastic place, the studio. You can, yeah. you know, we're making it up, guys. <laughs>
0: exactly, and they should have felt lucky to have the opportunity to work with you in the first place. So I imagine, given they had no experience, and you've got an incredible career behind you, you know, for them to learn from.
1: It was a fantastic show. We had amazing music. We were using the Berlioz score. We had fantastic opportunities to do it with a live orchestra. Extra, the whole staging the costumes was fabulous and you've got to bear in mind most people were completely unemployed right through Covid yeah, it, was a, it was a nightmare for freelancers so yeah. I really felt like it was my duty to try and keep going and offer people work as yeah. much as I possibly could
0: so in that context you bring up Orlando by Virginia Wolf as a proposition for a new production
1: so I invited the dancers to my house they stayed Till too late. And I regret, you know, not, not listening to my or husband and kicking it like, It's a
0: big rave. It's a big rave happening well, at your house.
1: Sort of. But it was <laughs> still, it wasn't crazy because the gardens next to my son's bedroom, you know, okay. weren't, weren't being ridiculous. What they did was they asked me what my next show was. And I was about two years into preparation for Orlando. And I was just about to put an audition notice out. Okay. And I'd already been having that week a few arguments or debates about the wording of this Uh audition notice. And and someone very junior in my company had sort of reworded it to sort of include gender euphoria or something like this. And I was like, hey, hang on, I'm just looking for a... It's a male aristocrat.
0: Yeah, so this is the story by Virginia Woolf of Orlando. So for people who haven't read the book, can you tell us the story?
1: It's a fantastic sort of... It's Virginia Woolf playing with form and style... And she's having a lot of fun and there's a lot of humour. And we meet this young, slightly wet hero in Elizabethan England. And he wants to become a poet, but he's a dreadful poet. But he's desperately trying to be an artist. And so there's lots of kind of like discussion around what makes an artist really an artist. Even though you may feel you're an artist, if your work is really dreadful, Does that mean that you're an artist or not? (laughs) And he falls in love and he gets horribly rejected and then he becomes an ambassador in Morocco. And then at that point where there's a civil war and he's meant to grab his firearms, he actually sort of runs away and falls asleep. And when he wakes up, he's a woman. That's it. He's a woman. No further explanation. Mm. Then Orlando carries on through another three, two, three hundred years of history. So he, she never ages and the novel changes as we go through the Georgian era and then we go into the Victorian era and then we finally end where Virginia Woolf just blasts you with her sort of 20th century stream of consciousness bang into the modern age and so it's 400 years of English history it's a hero turns into a heroine so it looks at how people behave around Orlando when they're a man and when they're a woman. But it also looks at even inheritance because Orlando, as a woman, can't inherit the great big country pile. Mm -hmm. Also, it's a love letter to Vita Sackville-West, who was her lover, and they had a terribly passionate relationship. But Vita was also madly in love with her her country pile that she would never inherit. Mm. And so there's something in there also about a lesbian love affair, about sort of showing off to Vita, her prowess. And I just love that because you can play with costume, you can play with theatricality, you can play with body, kind of like, how do we know this person's a man? How how do we know they're a woman? I'd been speaking to a couple of trans friends of mine and an LGBT book group. And I just was like, I don't know who my Orlando is. They just have to be fantastic. Mm -hmm. It could be a man, could be a woman, could be trans, could be, I don't know. It's just got to be somebody that can be convincing.
0: Well, obviously, Virginia Woolf would never have had any concept of what a trans person was, and this is a book of fantasy, in a sense, tied in with the history, a a reality. But in the context of 2021, last year, a book like that is going to be interpreted not quite maybe how Virginia Woolf had intended.
1: But I felt like this is a feminist writer, a great of the 20th century I've positioned a female viewpoint at the centre of all my work since I started making work in 1998. I'm an artist that has a standing that can interpret this in the way I want to. Now, I'm also someone that sort of, sadly, my brother died. so, So I grew up, With steam train posters on my wall, being obsessed, I thought I was Tintin for a while, with being on the school football team until they kicked me off, despite me being the best striker. And they said, well, I'm sorry, Rosie, you're a girl. You know, I'm someone that's kind of gone, well, if I were a boy, what would I do? What would I get away with? That's much harder when you're a woman. And then also being now older woman, I've been through enough whether that be sexual assault, sexual harassment. I've even talked about rape in one of my shows. I've been through abortion. I've been through a really dangerous pregnancy and and birth. There are things that have affected me because of my body and because of my biology that I want to talk about, (laughs) that Mm. I think are really vital and interesting to talk about. I wasn't an artist that put me and my body centre-place in terms of, like, the work I made. I wanted to look at the world... But now I'm at the age where I think, well, actually, I I can put myself into my work as well and I can put my own opinions into my work and be more open about that. So, you know, I'd, I'd made this solo adult female dancer also in 2021 and it premiered and it said, being a woman is not in my head. I say that in the solo. So in some respects, I felt like I was starting to kind of like, I knew there was this argument going on around trans, but I also think it's something that, is a cultural phenomenon and that really interests me. If we're yeah. going to redefine identity and biology, I want to be looking at this. This yeah. is fascinating. Yeah. What's going on here? Yeah. Why can't I look at
0: it? Particularly in your field of choreography, where the body is so integral to the art form. There's a beautiful piece you wrote. You're a great prose writer as well. A beautiful piece you wrote for Unheard at the end of last year, writing about your connection with your body. It's And I urge listeners to read it. But it's, it's absolutely integral to what you do.
1: Well, I mean, I was... Obviously like looking at the soldier's body was such a starting point and that became such an important work for me. But then through that I also got invited to become artist in residence at the University of Oxford to the School of Anthropology. So I have actually even properly gone and read my Foucault and my embodiment <laughs> theory and <laughs> okay. you know, I've written papers about the lived experience mm. and, and how we can use dance and use bodies to illuminate medical conditions such as anorexia. I've worked with neuroscientists, I've looked at the connection between dance, the brain, the body, you know, I've written papers on this, you know, the body and the connection with the mind and and how we perceive ourselves, that's been fundamental to my work, you know, before embodiment became something else, you know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, can you take us back to this controversy then with, if you don't mind, what happened with this troupe? And how that conversation at your dinner party ended up not long after you having to resign from your own company?
1: Well, I'm going to do it quite briefly. And in a nutshell, it got into quite an actual heated debate about the difference between sex and gender. And I was explicitly asked to give my beliefs. And I think, you know, I just have concerns that are quite mainstream if we erase the word woman to include anybody that can say they're a woman or self-identify as a woman, then we do lose some of the sex-based protections. And I think like, by looking at the extremes of where that takes us, that can tell us something about why those sex-based protections are there in the first mm-hmm. place. But a lot of my words were misconstrued, misunderstood. I don't think people really listened. I think they were quite shocked that I just didn't agree with their mm. orthodoxy. I was very shocked that they had such a strong... Ideology really shocked, and the more I tried to appeal to like my own lived experience, yeah. uh, the, the worse it got. The worse it got. So, so I was in like proper shock afterwards, like real shock, because I'd sort of had not all of them, but a lot of them just shouting at me, and I and I was really it's it's like your worst nightmare as a choreographer because you you're relying on these people, their bodies and their minds to play along with you, to put this thing on stage that's a creation from your imagination. So if you lose them, it's a bit like sort of losing your soldiers. You know, they're going to shoot you in the head. I really felt paralysed, really paralysed by the whole thing. So I appealed to my chair, who I trusted, and I thought she would help sort it out. But very, very quickly, it dawned on me that she'd actually already taken their side. And so we got through the show... And then I had a so-called informal meeting and then I was told that I'd be investigated. So I said, OK, I've never had a complaint in all my years. I understand there's a process, that's go through it. So we did that. I had a meeting at the end, I was exonerated. I decided to put out an apology to the dancers for the fact that they were so upset by what I said. And then we went straight back into rehearsals again for another sort of run of shows. One of the dancers appealed, walked out... And then about three weeks later, I discovered that they were doing a second investigation. But this time, and only through accident, I found out that they were using external lawyers, an HR consultant related to the lawyers, and that these lawyers were also the same firm as one of my trustees. So I started to push back a bit harder, saying, well, hang on, what's this secondary investigation? They refused me any support on legal advice while they were using... The company money yeah. to pay for lawyers to investigate me. There was no mutual investigation. Rosie K
0: Productions company mon- money, yeah. no less. Yeah,
1: yeah, money that I'd earned through my work. They were using that money to investigate me, and then things just got to a real head. I, I found out some some nasty stuff, some horrifically false allegations. And I could see that this investigation was... was That must
0: have been so traumatising. I mean, you say you humbled yourself to apologise for offending and they came back, but then... You say that you sort of you stood up for yourself a bit more the second time around, or did you have a change emotionally? This is one of the things I, I don't think people appreciate so much. Yeah, is that the experience of quote unquote being cancelled? Yeah, it's, it's actually very emotional, particularly for people in the creative industries who are more sensitive by nature and who aren't used to being thrown into the political fray and to having people challenge them or, or being disliked. So, I imagine not only was the experience traumatising for you. But this was your baby that you, you know, for 17 years you'd built up. This is, you'd poured your life into this. so It must have been very painful.
1: Yeah, yeah. It was awful. And I, I thought I was, I actually genuinely thought I was going mad. I actually thought I was going mad. And I was really lucky to get a decent doctor. And then, mm. it's quite, quite funny, I got sent to a psychiatrist, which is saying something on the NHS right now. And I went there and I sort of had two hours talking to this really amazing psychiatrist. And, and I was really trying to convince her that I was completely mad. I was like, but you don't understand. I make stuff up. That's my job. You know, like I have these dreams and these visions. I'm clearly something's <laughs> like wrong with me. And and she asked me to explain this party and this argument a couple of times. And then she you know, she got to the end and I thought, come on, I'm mad. And, and she just, she said, no, there's nothing wrong with you. There's That's nothing so wrong with you. I could give you any drug you want. I don't think you want any drugs, but basically you're very, very stressed. You're having a terrible time at work and you might need to think about your future for your own health.
0: Is there anything in that experience with all these people accusing you of such thing that you were like, oh, maybe they're right, maybe I am doing something wrong? When you say you convince yourself you're mad, is that because so many people were gaslighting you that you started to gaslight yourself?
1: You know, I'm in the middle of, of creating a Romeo and Juliet that's about murder and yeah. knife crime and suicide and I'm like completely raw and open and then this attack comes into like this vacuum, I'm still recovering from my dad's yeah. death. And all I just felt was this overwhelming, terrible sense of, like, doom. It was just horrific. Poor thing. And actually, it was my closest family, my mum and my my husband who... Actually, my husband just said, no, nah, you're not mad. No, no, no. Good for you, him. Yeah. They bullied you. Yeah. And looking back now, it was a witch hunt. Mm. It really was. And that now I'm trying to, like, figure out the meaning of these things, the meaning of witch hunts, why do these pylons happen? Mm. Why are they happening now? What's going on? Yeah. This is absolutely fascinating to me. Yeah. But I suppose you do go into quite a severe, you know, profound existential soul-searching yeah. because you really have to go, well, why am I doing what I do? Why are my beliefs and my thoughts about reality so offensive to other people? Yeah. Well, hang on, do I still stand by them? Yes, I do. Well then, I have to get through this. You know, I have to like. I sort of found an inner metal that I'd, I'd never, I'd never known. I knew I was strong because, yeah, I'm a dancer. It's hard, <laughs> but I didn't know quite that my soul was so so tough as well. And one
0: never anticipates that one would have to go through an experience like this. It's not something we were taught about in school necessarily about that these sort of phenomena are going to happen, and it is a phenomenon of, of the age. In that sense.
1: But funnily enough, actually, I come from. So, my granddad was a Polish refugee and fled the Nazis and joined the Polish Free Army and married a Scottish woman. And a lot of my family were exterminated in Poland. And then, my first job as a dancer, professional dancer, was in Poland in the late 90s. So, not only did I grow up with ideas around. What happened to... I love Germany. It's the most wonderful country. I love all the literature, the music, the arts. What happened there, and I sort of was always quite obsessed by the rise of fascism mm. and and also then the communist sort of iron curtain that came down over Poland and then sort of thwarted Polish arts. Yeah. So I grew up with you know these debates at the dinner table talking about freedom freedom of speech. Oh, really? I investigated Weimar artists people like Otto Dix and this kind of shock from World War 1. But then also did they capitulate or did they flee Germany mm. in the in the 30s? And then I also studied Weimar Republic choreographers Mm. and people like Mary Wigman and Rudolf Laban have quite ambiguous relationships to what happened with the state in the thirties in Germany. And so then living in Poland in the nineties, it was post-communist, but it wasn't in the EU yet. Actually, it reminded me being in a post-dance theatre was a little bit like the company of Romeo and Juliet. It was a little bit paranoid. You had to be careful what you said. Uh It was quite competitive, but my friends were all theatre practitioners and artists And what Polish artists had learned to do under communism was make their work deeply and vastly symbolic. So they never said anything pro or against the state, but you had these incredible imagery and they would play with imagery, but nothing would ever be fixed. It would morph into something Mm. else. And I've always loved that about my job, about dance. It's like you can put one stereotype there, but the minute you see it, you can morph it Mm. and undermine whatever you're thinking in your head. Yeah. And so playing with symbolism, playing with power, playing with reality, I, I, I think there's something interesting there. So this is an interesting time to absolutely. be an artist.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, what do you think's behind the ideology of, let's say, this troupe that you're up against? What do you think's driving that? And what's the, what is the world of dance? Where, where is this coming from? Because is it a generational thing? Is it all of dance? I found in, in the music industry, for example, that it is majority progressive yeah in terms of politics but that also the kind of artists aged between 15 and 25 have quite a lot of power because they're the ones who sell the most records and so whatever they believe does sort of dictate a lot of what can and can't be said amongst other people within the industry by comparison in dance what does that world look like
1: well I hadn't realised that there was this ideological capture going on. And it hasn't been that long since I was involved in universities and, and lecturing and academia. I was probably there just before things kind of really, like I was saying about being at the School of Anthropology, there certainly was no pronouns or anything coming in at that point. But there were definitely sort of arguments you know, of course, being anthropology as well, there were big arguments about its colonial history and history of racism, which I found fascinating, and about time. So this is the thing, this, I think for lots of us that are possibly this sort of, like, sandwich generation, there's an element of truth in lots of these things or lots of these progressive political ideas. Like, you know, feminists were always about destroying the gender stereotypes and, you know, women can do anything that men can do, men can do anything that women can do. Oh, hang on! But that doesn't mean that men are women or women are men. You know. Oh, hang on! There are some sort of biological realities which which play a part mm. in why women are an oppressed majority. You know. And then there's been this stuff around around racism, around history, around colonialisation. You know, there's elements of truth to all of that, and yeah. and you can kind of go, yeah. Well, I agree. I agree to a certain point. I don't quite know why it's gone so massive and so widespread. I mean, there's different theories around that and one can sort of trace it back to probably the 1960s or certainly sort of the late 90s and sort of queer theory and critical race theory and things that seem to be on the fringe of becoming mainstream. I don't I How does don't that know. get into
0: dance? Are these kids who are studying dance after school, wherever they are, university, are they what? being taught that stuff there or is it just in the water for them? In their lives, is the sort of Foucaultian philosophy that you've you've studied somehow actually penetrated into the world of dance? And not just in their ideas that are commonplace, but rather that they're being taught.
1: I think a couple of things happened, and there's a conclusion of what's going on, particularly in the arts at the moment, in the conservatoires. Obviously, when, when people started like having to pay their own fees and students started being called clients or customers rather than students, and so the power of those students and the retention became all pervasive. And then you have this kind of, like, you have this grievance culture, this complaint culture, this anonymous complaints mm. culture. Now, when I was at dance school, I would say it was too far the other way, and it was tough it was really tough you know I definitely wouldn't want to go back to that way of teaching however there's too sort of, tough
0: in, in what sense in oh, the, the authoritarian t- teaching very
1: authoritarian okay. yeah yeah there's a wrong and a right and that's it and right. that's final now it's probably gone a bit too far the other way in that there's a rejection of any kind of level of authority or, or also there's like this sort of wider rejection of experts or expertise. Yeah. And there's a lot to do about people's feelings and emotions and there's very little kind of like knowledge-based mm. sort of study that you can only have. I mean, actually, I don't really care too much about these emotions and feelings. You need to fill yourself with as much knowledge as possible. Yeah. What was interesting about Romeo and Juliet was actually the dancers that came through different training strands, so either through hip-hop or through South Asian dance, like barrenatin or or katak dance, they didn't have these beliefs. It was the dancers that had gone through the conservatoires. Uh. So I do think there's something about, you know, luxury beliefs, Hmm. luxury belief systems that people hang on to. There's definitely a sort of culture of who's the most oppressed and i just don't really have any i'm not really interested in that i mean i mean yeah. i've worked with really difficult inner city schools and students and the arts are brilliant at expanding people's worlds yeah. i want i want to do that kind of work not sit down yeah. and and navel gaze ourselves that's not what the arts are for i also think there's a real lack of good teaching about what the arts really are for mm. like like the deep meaning of what arts actually do in society. We are here to shock. We are here to sort of like peel back the eyelids of people and take a society out of inertia and yeah. out of complacency. That's what we're here to do.
0: Absolutely. And you
1: look at the best art that changed the world, like there's Sacré de Printemps by Nijinsky or, or, you know, the Marquis de Sade or, you know, other shocking people, the young British artists of the 90s. You know, it, it shocked us all and it shifts society. Yeah. Being told to shut up, <laughs> you're not allowed to speak, or we're going to keep you under a control where you're never allowed to speak again. That's impossible for me. It's yeah. just impossible. I wasn't going to do it. So, that, so to go back, that's why I resigned.
0: You've resigned and you're now, as I said earlier, relaunching or launching K2 Co. Yes. Uh, is that Rosie K 2.0 company? Is, <laughs> is, have I understood that right? Is well, it, it-
1: well it's, the K is important because my grandfather's real name was Kwiatkowski and kwiet is flower in polish but it begins with the letter k and there was quite a lot of anti-polish feeling when my grandfather and grandmother had to stay in scotland they wanted to go back to poland but they couldn't so the letter our family name became k so the k is important yes it's my second company and yeah. it's a new start it's a fresh start and what was lovely and shocking to me in january after i'd sort of recovered a bit like you say it's just hugely like physically takes so much out of you I hadn't mm. eaten for weeks I was sort of shaking and vomiting it was awful oh, um once I recovered and slept I just had this explosion of like the new work I wanted to make and just oh, great. being really brave and going like I'm gonna focus on women on sex on gender I'm gonna go for it and I wrote this trilogy of works and felt really happy about it. And then slowly, slowly just started talking to theatres, directors, programmers, saying, you're still interested in my work? And people are, so... Oh,
0: great. <laughs> and so what will the first work be? Will it be Orlando?
1: Well, so, so I'm going to tour Five Soldiers next year because I think that's just a really good piece that sort of, for anyone who hasn't seen my work live, it gives you a taste of, you know, what it is I do. The first part of the trilogy is going to be called Deep Fake. And I'm looking at bodies, a woman's body, identity. What happens if your actual physical body becomes obsolete and your digital self is more important than deepfake
0: stuff? Is so spooky. It's absolutely terrifying. It's mad. I hope you haven't experienced any.
1: Fortunately, not. No, no. But it really like that. I've worked with like cyber experts and. You can now fake people's voices. So, like, you, you could get your mum calling you up saying, "I've been kidnapped. I need ransom," and it's utterly convincing as your mum's voice. And This, this is, is post-post-truth
0: world we're in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. So, you've written the part one of your trilogy is is fake. and so
1: I'm I'm busy in the studio experimenting with that and trying to find like this kind of new, really weird, slightly poppy, odd language, disembodied language. Yeah, I made a piece called MK Ultra about brainwashing when would that be about like five, six years ago and so this feels like the next one it's like, like you say like when I was talking about conspiracy everyone was saying oh you're bonkers we're, we're way past conspiracy now like yeah. reality's conspiracy it's just <laughs> yeah, weird so that's the first part and then the second part would be Orlando and I think that's like super theatrical really over the top I think really funny, I mean really funny, a comedy probably.
0: <laughs> Great, well I'm, I'm very excited, I, I'll be there, uh, I look forward to seeing them and I hope that your story gives succor to many other people who feel like they have to self-censor and, and feel like they can't you know, express themselves truly and perhaps your new company will be a home for them and, and other people in the dance world to come to.
1: Well I hope so, so that's one of the things I've been working on with my new advisory board is is we're going to put together a charter of creation, and it's really like, you don't have to sign it, it's not a policy, it's not an employment policy, but it's something that just says, this is a place where you're safe to speak, to think, to challenge ideas, no one will be silenced, Nobody will be cancelled, we're here to work together for the purpose of art, we're here to understand what the purpose of art is, and let the audience be our judge, you know, you make the work and let the people judge you, let's not judge ourselves before we've made the art, because... We're not going to make anything, are we? So a freedom
0: of expression charter. Yeah,
1: okay. yeah, exactly. And, you know, I've, heard, I've thought a lot about this because you, you hear these things, oh, well, freedom of speech is a cover for the right wing or something like this. But actually, I trace it right back to freedom of thought, freedom of conscience. Yeah, You know, people died for this, for freedom of conscience. Once you've gone through the thought process and your conscience, then you have the the area of expression, which is the arts. And for me, you know, that's, that's dance. So I'm, I'm not yeah. speaking. But then actually, here we are, and speech is vitally important yeah. because to be silenced and to be terrified and to be scared, to have your livelihood threatened so much, we're on the cusp of something. I don't think it's inevitable that it carries on down this route. It's not inevitable. I see a lot of hope. However, it is a dangerous moment. And so it's certainly not nice what happened to me. It's, it's awful. I'm not going to deny that. But also I would want to say to other people, do what you can in your own way to speak out and to resist. it can be tiny or it can be big but we we need to have a pluralistic society and a tolerant society and that's what I love about you know so much of the western canon is based on that explosion of ideas and the testing of ideas yeah
0: well Rosemary that is absolutely the world I want to live in (laughs) so more power to you and I very much look forward to watching your new company blossom, bloom grow and it's going to be great I'm sure so congratulations thanks Winston thanks so much thank you
1: Thank you.